As we left our reading of John 5 last time, uh, if you would turn there on John 5, we'll soon be reading verses 25 through 29, five short verses. As we left off our reading and teaching last time, Jesus has introduced us to the subject of the resurrection, of the fact that he is able and powerful and capable of uh, raising the dead Belief in the resurrection today, as Christianity is commonly confessed, it can take many different forms. I don't doubt what Douglas Davies, uh, who's a scholar at the University of Durham in the UK, uh, says here is true. He says, and writes, some Christians press the embodiment idea. That is that we are human beings who have bodies. Okay, so that this is what he means by embodiment. We, We are who we are because we are embodied. They press the embodiment idea abandoning ideas of soul or spirit to focus attention not on human fulfillment of destiny in some other world, but in this material world. For them, traditional ideas of resurrection take on a different kind of interpretation, one focused on their own transformation in this life amidst the community of the church. So he's saying, there are certain groups of Christians now who have completely abandoned the idea of, of resurrection either for a, a spiritual world somewhere else or even a spiritual sort of resurrection. And instead, what they're talking about when, when Scripture talks about resurrection is that we are resurrected through a, a transformation. Now, at, at first, we need to say that there's something that's right about that, and that's simply that it's not wrong to not think of resurrection just as the bodily resurrection that will come. As we're going to talk about today, even Jesus believes that that is true. And if Jesus does, then we ought to as well. But they are wrong to think of it only in terms of the material world. It's hard to even understand what they mean by resurrection simply as transformation. I, I, I don't know what exactly that looks like. Do we become sort of zombies? It seems like, like you, are, you are either dead or you're alive. It's sort of a digital thing. It's not an analog. You don't go from one kind of to the other, right? It's not like some sort of spiritual cocoon, which Sounds like a, frankly, bad Christian novel. (laughs) Jesus here speaks more fully of the resurrection as he's already mentioned it to give us sort of an understanding of his power and his authority to bring forward the resurrection for us, or we should probably say a little bit more truly the resurrections that should be coming to us. So if you would turn to verses 25 through 29 as we read in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's holy and infallible word. What should we see from this scripture about the resurrections? First, in verse 25, I would like to point out the resurrection is found in Jesus' voice. It is found in his voice alone. I think that we would be right to point out that there are two resurrections here. 
And so we need to talk about why we believe or why I believe that there are two resurrections here. They aren't enumerated. He doesn't say, hey, here is the first resurrection, and then I'm going to talk about a different resurrection here in a bit. We don't have that, so we need to kind of make sure that we're dealing with these rightly. The first reason is temporal. So you'll read in verse 25 that he says an hour is coming, but then he, he amends that by saying it's now here. It's coming These things will continue on, but there is an hour now currently that is happening. These sorts of resurrections are going on. But then in verses 28 and 29, when he's talking about what I think is a subsequent resurrection, you'll notice that there isn't a a sort of qualification that it's now happening. He simply says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming. So there, there appears to be a resurrection that was not only going to happen in the future, but even as Jesus was speaking, that hour was at hand, that that resurrection was going to happen. And then there would be a future resurrection as well. There's also a difference in location. So in verse 25, we have no mention of anything like tombs. But in verses 28 and 29, we do have the mention of tomb, all who are in tombs. That is a a nice way of talking about those people who have died and have physically been buried. They will then come to life. There will be a bodily resurrection of them. But there's no mention of that in verse 25. Thirdly, there's also a limitation in the first resurrection. Notice, the dead will hear sound a lot like the dead will hear in verses 28 and 29. But in verses 28 and 29 where he says, all of them will come up. The evil to the resurrection of judgment, the good to the resurrection of life. In verse 25, he says, it is only those who hear who will live. That is, the first resurrection is not for all people. It is for those who will hear the voice of Jesus Christ. I think that we could well say that there is a spiritual resurrection in verses 25 and 26 and 27 that he's talking about. And then in verses 28 and 29, he is talking about a physical, bodily resurrection resurrection. So what is this spiritual resurrection that he's talking about in verse 25? It's, it's no different really than what we've already read in the book of John. Back in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus in talking to Nicodemus has said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, And truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is, you need to be remade fully and totally. And and what this means is not that you are remade bodily, which would be to be born again as Nicodemus understands it. But what Jesus means is that God will remake your heart. He will remake your soul. He He will make you new in soul or spirit. This phenomenon is part and parcel of the New Testament literature that we have. We talk about this in a number of different ways to give us a number of different metaphors in which to work, to think through how God makes us new spiritually. We have resurrection, as I think Jesus is talking about here in John 5, but again, the famous passage in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul doesn't come out and say it, but I don't know what else you would call being dead and then coming alive. And he certainly is not talking about being physically dead there. He is talking about being spiritually dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul, in other places, doesn't talk about it in terms of resurrection, but rather in terms of an entire new creation that is being given to people. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, 
We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he, he says, this, this sort of resurrection, the work that God has done in you, is, is akin to being born again. It is akin to being resurrected. It is akin to having an, an entire new creation that God is making you new again. And it doesn't have anything to do with your physical body. Your physical body is still wearing away. It's wasting away. You will one day die in your body, but there is a resurrection of your soul or your spirit that will never be born or that will never die again. Paul even talks, I think, in Galatians 4 of being born again, but we don't have time to talk about that passage. This type of speech implies several things for us that I think we need to make sure that we are getting straight. The first, you, friend, outside of Christ and outside of the voice of Christ calling you to life again are dead. Not like like needing a little help. Not like a, a car battery that needs to be jumped and then it can be charged again, right? You are dead. The language is firm and strong. Jesus isn't pulling any punches. You are dead. The question then becomes, I think, how is this so? How, how do we become dead before God? What does that even mean to be dead, as Paul would say, in our trespasses and in our sins? We talk like that all the time, but have you really thought through what that might mean to actually be dead? Don't we have hearts that work? Don't we have consciences don't we have souls? What does it mean that we're dead? Because we certainly don't act like we're dead. We certainly don't talk like we're dead. What does it mean that we're dead? I think what it means, I think what it means, is simply that our final judgment, the, the certainty of our death is just that, certain. We are doomed to die, and there is no way that we can get out of it. We see this almost immediately in scripture, this sort of of phrasing for how death is to take hold of us. Because what does God say in Genesis 2, 16 and 17? Before chapter 3 in the fall, God says this to Adam and Eve. The Lord God commanded them saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what happens when they take and eat. Do they surely die? Well, they will surely die, but they don't die that day. So God is saying, you are dead. The minute that fruit hits your lips, you are dead. But the minute that fruit hits their lips, they don't actually die. So we've got a couple of of ways to handle this. Either God is mistaken, God changed his mind, or we're not understanding what he means by surely die the way we ought to. What he means is your death is imminent. You will never avoid it now. There is no way to get around dying. A certain death awaits you, and it is sealed the moment that that fruit hits your lips. And so while God postpones killing Adam and Eve, there is no doubt that their lives will come to an end. We know this, we talk like this frequently, that something is certain even before the judgment is passed down. I remember very, very clearly, almost 20 years ago now, in the fall, I remember it was in October, I was taking a test. I hated this class more than any other class that I have ever taken in my life, and I hope 
well, I hope I'd never have to take another class again, but so does all my family. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, I disliked this class more than any other class. I loved chemistry. Chemistry was brilliant because it was conceptual. I understood it. It made sense to me. I could picture stuff rolling around in my head. I always hated physics, though. I don't anymore. I don't know what was wrong with me then, but I hated physics. And so I had to take a class called physical chemistry, or shortened to P-chem. And it was the most difficult class I ever took. And I remember sitting there, taking the first exam, which was 30 questions, multiple choice for a couple of hours, getting done with that test, turning it in, and knowing without the shadow of a doubt unless I was the luckiest man on the face of the earth because it was Scantron, that that was a failure. Like I turned that in thinking there was no chance at all that I passed. If someone had come up to me and said, hey, Doug, how did you do on that test? I would have said, I failed. Okay. Now, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but as it turns out, I failed. Okay. I got 13 out of 30 on that test and I was average. Okay. Which either tells you that the class is really, really hard or we were not the brightest batch of kids. Uh, it could be either one. You got to take your pick there. But nevertheless, I knew that I had failed. If somebody had asked me, how did you do on that test? I would have said, I failed. But the judgment of my failure hadn't actually come down yet. He hadn't graded the test. But there was no doubt. There was a certainty there. What God is saying when he tells you that you are dead is that there is absolute certainty that you will not pass the judgment. There is an absolute certainty given who you are, given the things that you have done, that you will do, that given where your heart is, that there is no way for you to make it through judgment. Listen, we already have a picture of this. Again, earlier in the book of John, in John 3.18, a passage that is important to kind of keep in our minds as we go through this. After that famous passage in John 3.16, we have John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You stand no chance. It's like the spirit saying, listen, I've run the computer simulation billions and billions of times, and every time you fail. Jesus is looking at you saying, if you go to judgment, you will die. You are already dead. You're just waiting for it to happen. So first, you need to understand you are dead you cannot make yourself right before God. You cannot make your soul to live. Secondly, you cannot fix your deadness. Not only are you dead, but there's nothing you can do about it. You can't muscle your way up. The dead are famous for one thing over everything else, and that is their total inability to make themselves live. No matter how much they try, whatever that looks like, you cannot make yourself live before God. If you are dead, how do you make yourself alive? He says that that is a sealed and secure judgment. There is no way to get out of your deadness. You can muscle up all you want to. You can, you can say, listen, I'm going to study scripture. I'm going to make my life the virtues that I find in here. And I'm going to do every good thing. I'm going to see homeless guys. I'm going to help them to Big Macs all around. I'm going to do everything I can to clothe my naked brothers and sisters. I'm going to do everything the Bible commands me to do. I'm going to be kind and generous. And the issue is, not only will you not do those things because you're lying to yourself and you don't have the ability to do them, but what's more, even if you did them, you are still being sinful before God because you are not doing it in his power and in his strength. There is no way for you to avoid the inevitability of your own death. You cannot fix your deadness. So our life and resurrection from this dead state to one of life is found only in the voice of Jesus. He speaks and we come alive. That is the only place that it is found. 
But again, this, what does it mean for him to speak to us? Two things that we will pick up here and we will pick up in verses 29 or verses 28 and 29. It means that he is our shepherd and that we follow him and we listen to his voice. So in John 10, 27 through 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He says, I call to them and they hear my voice. So the voice of Jesus goes out and he calls to them and how does he know that the sheep hear his voice? They turn to him and they follow him. They obey what he is calling them to do. But it's not just that we live in obedience to Christ, but it's also that he actually brings us to life. He, he gives us a heart to long and to love the Lord our God. Like Lazarus, who was in the tomb for four days, warned is Jesus that if he opens the tomb, the stench will come out. He gives thanks to God so that the people hear him and then says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus doesn't just come to life and say, it's kind of nice in here. It's dark. It's quiet. I like time by myself. I'm just going to stay back here, right? No, what does Lazarus do? He not only comes alive, but he comes out because Christ has called him to do that. To hear his voice is both a calling for us to live and giving us life and then leading us in obedience behind him we downplay either of these two things, the voice of Jesus has not made us alive. You cannot think that you only need to do good things in order to get to heaven. If you think that, you will fail. That's what Jesus has said. If you fail to believe in him, you will already have condemnation over you. But to think that what you need is somehow for the voice of Jesus to come to you so that you are raised again but that you don't have to walk in obedience before him is foolishness. And what the Bible calls is licentiousness. And it is a trampling on the grace of Christ to even make you alive. He has not made you alive so that you can sit dead in the tombs in the sin that you once walked in. He has made you alive so that you might walk in good works, which he has prepared beforehand for you so that you might boast in the Lord. Resurrection is found in Jesus's voice. He calls to you and you come alive. Secondly, resurrection is found in Jesus himself. The question then turns to, what is it that gives Jesus both the power and the authority in order to raise people from the dead? So the first question we're going to tackle is, what gives Jesus the power to raise people from the dead? Because this is indeed a power. This seems like it's something outside of our ability to do, right? We get out the paddles and we shock people, but once they're dead, we have no way of bringing them back. How does Jesus have this power? Verse 26 tells us the power. Notice 4 is explaining. 26, he says, For, this is explaining, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That is, uh, that is quite the statement that we need to parse out. What does it mean For the Father to have life in himself. And what does it mean for the Son to likewise have life in himself? What does it mean to have life in yourself? 
How does God have life in himself, and how is it different from our lives? After all, as we talked before, I have a heart that beats. I've got a brain that sends little electrical signals around. I have uh, an ability to react to my environment. I have all of these things that have symbols of life in them. How am I not alive in the same way that God is alive? Do I not have life in myself? Well, I have life because God has given it to me. But to have life in yourself is a completely different phenomenon. We don't have life intrinsically. It is something that God gives to us. This is one of the things that always ought to humble us, is that our lives, in every way, shape, or form, are always completely and utterly dependent upon God. Every breath you take, every signal that you send from your brain to your fingertips, every Every beat of your heart is a gift that God has given to you. He does, not des- he does not owe you any of it. You don't deserve any of it, but he gives it to you. Psalm 90, verses 2 through 4, listen to the comparison between who God is and who man is. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before you formed the world, you were there. You were God. And after everything ends, you will be there. You are a God from everlasting to everlasting. There was never a time when God was not. God was always. He always will be. He is always there. The next verse, you will return man to dust. It's a beautiful way of saying you came from dust, which means you had a beginning And you will return to dust. You will have an end. God has no beginning. God has no end. But mankind does. God has life in himself. Man has life only when God gives it to him. For a thousand years in your sight. This is the best quote. This is better than what Peter says. Forgive me, Peter. This is better than what Peter says. Peter says, a thousand years is like a day to you. Psalm 90 says, a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday. The thousand years in the future, it's like it's already happened. God has no reference of time the way we do because he doesn't age, because he doesn't know anything of time. He doesn't experience time. He is above and beyond time because he always is. This is the very nature of God. This is why he he applies to himself the great name, I am. It simply means nothing more than, than, yes, you can put little, you know, nouns after it to, I am the Lord or something like that. But I am simply means I exist. I am the one who always is. I am the only one who always is. There is no other one. I am that I am. Existence is not something that he has given. Existence is not something that he he has. It is a thing that he is. He is existence. He is the I am A great but somewhat odd example of this comes in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock down to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked. And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And I used to think, like many of you did, I'm sure, and probably still do, and maybe you will after I'm done with this, but I'm hoping to change your mind, that what was special about that was the bush. That it was God sustaining the very nature of the bush. 
that the bush was on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed because God was there and he was keeping the bush from being consumed. But the actual implication for what we should be getting, what Moses needs to get from that is not about the bush, but it's about the fire. Fire needs three things to actually run. It needs a spark, it needs a fuel source, and it needs oxygen. This fire is different. It needs none of those things. What changed my mind was part of a sermon I heard by Sinclair Ferguson, who has this beautiful Scottish accent, which I will not, for your own sake, replicate for you today. The way he says the word bush just makes you think, wow, that's, I would like to talk like that. But I won't, so I won't even try. My kids are bummed. Um, this is what Sinclair Ferguson says about that passage. The fire was in the bush, present in the bush, but preserving the bush. It was a symbol of God's redemptive power. Notice especially that the fire was in the bush, but it was not dependent on the bush for its energy to burn. A most pure fire, a fire that was nothing but fire, a fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but was an energy source in itself. He said, it's not God sustaining the bush, but there was no reason for the bush to have to burn because the fire was God itself, himself, and didn't need the bush to burn. It needed no source because he is fire of fire. He is pure fire. He is pure life. He doesn't need other life to exist. He only evermore exists. This is what it means to have life in yourself. You have life. You are not dependent. You are life embodied, if you would. So what does it mean then that that was given to the Son? Today is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick was famous for his explanation of the Trinity to the people of Ireland. And he would use this three-leafed clover and he would point at the clover and he would say, listen, each of these little leaves or parts of the clover are like the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. They are three individual parts of it or they are three persons in the Trinity, but they're all part of one plant. Come on, Patrick. That's, that's a little weak, right? Like, it's not like God is some sort of, as, as somebody else has called this particular brand of thinking, Voltron, right? So it's not like five different parts that come together to make a whole. This, this makes God into like a parted God, that the essence and the nature of God is then split into three different things. So God the Father it gets part of Godhead, and God the Son gets part of the Godhead, and God the Spirit gets part of the Godhead, but that's not classical Christian thinking. And I'm not actually against analogies like that, but we need to know where their limits are. What we mean, and what John means by the Father has given life in himself to the Son, is first, simply that the Son comes from the Father. Now, that doesn't mean that he comes from the Father in time, but it means that his essence is communicated from the Father to the Son. It's always from the Father to the Son. But just as the Father is pure life, and there was never a time when he was not, so the Son is also then pure life. God so communicates his own being to the Son, the whole essence of God, the very nature of life in itself is found just as much in the Son as it is in the Father. The entirety of what it means to be God is in the Son just as it is in the Father. 
It is a mystery, it is profound, and it is beyond our ability to comprehend. But when he says he gave him life in himself, it cannot possibly mean, it cannot possibly mean that the Son of God at some point in time didn't have life and then God gave it to him because that could not possibly be life in himself. But the Son always has life in himself and that life comes from the Father. The fact that the Son has eternal and perfect life in himself just like the Father means that he can have nothing but the exact essence of the Father. So as we read through Scripture, we find that the, just as God is the author of all of life, so very quickly in the book of Acts, they're already talking about Jesus as though he is nothing short of God. Peter, speaking to the Jewish crowds, after seeing a miracle done in Acts 3, verses 14 through 15, he says, You denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now, either Peter is ridiculous in his understanding of what it means to be the author of life and what it means to kill somebody, or he is saying something incredibly profound there. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jesus has the power to raise the dead precisely because he is fully God and he has life in himself. But the authority, then, comes in our third point. The resurrection is found in Jesus' choice. It is found in Jesus' choice. It is found in his voice. It is found in the fact that he is the resurrection himself, and it is found in his choice. Notice again in verse 25, not everyone is raised. This isn't a resurrection of all people, but to only those who hear. Does that mean that you friends are simply going to come alive because you read the words of scripture or because I preach and I say this is what God's voice would have you do? I'm reading the very words of God and you can hear the voice of God in those words. Does that mean that you then have come alive? It doesn't mean that. The calling of Christ is what is important on your life. What it means that he has the authority to grant life to whom he will. Notice what it says. He has given him authority to execute judgment. He's given him authority to execute judgment. Now, executing judgment could very well mean that it's just a reference to him being given the final judgment again, as we've had last week. I don't think that's what it means, though. I think it means something more than that. He has given him the ability to execute judgment. That means he can judge those whom he wants to judge. And he can hold back judgment from those who he doesn't want to judge. So go back up to verse 24. Notice what he says about those who have eternal life. He, the one who has eternal life, does not come into judgment. That is, Jesus himself has spared that person judgment. Jesus has the right to execute judgment on whom he wants to. He also has the right to keep back judgment from others that he wants to. God has given him authority to execute judgment, to choose, I will put you under judgment, but I will give you mercy. It is wholly the decision of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not ours. Romans 9, 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it then depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jesus is nothing less than the God who speaks to Moses. And it is his choice to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. It is his choice to execute judgment on whom he will. 
and to keep back judgment from others and let them pass into eternal life. Jesus here helpfully gives us a reason why. Notice verse 27 is a further explanation of why it is that his voice is the one who calls forward the dead and he has given him authority to execute judgment and he tells us why he has authority to execute judgment. He says, because he is the son of man. This particular little phrase, the son of man, comes up all the time. But this particular way of writing the Son of Man in Greek only comes up about 11 times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of them mean absolutely nothing particular. It is a way of talking about humanity. So anyone who has actually read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia realizes that the boys are called sons of Adam. That's actually what the Hebrew means, sons of Adam. But the Greek is son of man, right? It, it, all it means is that he's human. He's human. Almost everywhere in the Old Testament, it means it's human. Actually, every single part that that comes up in, it simply means that that is a human being. It has nothing to do with divinity. There is one particular verse, though, that is so out of place that it mentions, it warrants mentioning, and that is Daniel 7, 13. So if you would, go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel is the last of the major prophets. So if you find Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, which take up a pretty good chunk of the Old Testament, go one book further over uh, to the end of Ezekiel, and you will find the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having a vision. He's having what is probably better termed a nightmare. Only this comes from, this nightmare comes from God. In the beginning of chapter 7, Daniel's vision begins by seeing four beasts come out of the sea. They are all great. They are incredibly powerful, and in their own way, they are majestic. But they are, if nothing else, ugly manifestations of raw evil and power. The first is a lion with eagle's wings. The second is a bear that does nothing but devour flesh. The third is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the final beast that comes up is so exceedingly strong that it doesn't even get an animal descriptor. It's, it must be so terrifying that Daniel can't even put words to what he sees. It is exceedingly strong and has many horns symbolizing all of its power. Now the descriptions, almost without a doubt, fall short. Without a doubt, they fall short of actually describing the terror and the horror of what Daniel is experiencing, okay? It's just like explaining a nightmare to somebody, right? Someone was chasing me. What did he look like? I don't know. Did he have a knife? I don't know. Did he have a gun? I don't know. It was horrifying. It could have just been, in real life, it would have just been a regular bloke walking out, but you knew that something was wrong, right? And anytime you've had a nightmare and you try to explain it to somebody, it always comes off as very lame, and you kind of sound really wussy when you, when you talk about it, because you're like, what were you scared of? But you know in nightmares, it's just horrifying. And Daniel talks like this. He says, it's almost like Daniel is trying to get you to say, I know this doesn't sound that bad, but, but trust me, it was horrible. Daniel 7, 15, halfway through the text, and then in 28 at the very end. Daniel 17, or 7, 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions of my mind terrified me. At the end of the chapter, verse 28, he says this, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale. He was horrified by what he saw. These beasts were exceedingly grotesque, they were exceedingly terrifying, and they were exceedingly powerful. And they persecuted and trampled on the people of God. But in verse 9, he sees something different. He sees the throne of God. 
We read there, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousand, thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Notice what he says here. He is the Ancient of Days. He is, as we've already talked about, life in himself. This is a depiction of God. It doesn't mean that God is you know, a, a bodily being as a father. But nevertheless, it is all symbolic. He is sitting on a throne. There are thrones brought up symbolizing kingdoms. He has servants to serve him. And the clothing that he wears symbolizes his purity, his power, and his glory. And then something amazing happens. Before this God, this all-powerful God has fire shooting out everywhere, who is unapproachable, there approaches one. And this is what Daniel says in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You get the sense of when he uses the word, like the Son of Man, which, by the way, is the only time in John that this phrase comes up the way it does. You get the sense that what he's saying is, it looked like the Son of Man. It must have been the Son of Man. But I don't know how it could have been. He, he seems to be flabbergasted at what he's seeing. And notice what happens to this Son of Man. Even as God who sits on his throne, who has servants around him, God gives him servants. Even as God who sits around the throne, clearly glorious and powerful and mighty, what does he give him? He gives him glory and he gives him a kingdom. Like God, this is going to be a man who rules. And his kingdom is not like the terrifying beasts, as strong and as mighty and as powerful as they might seem. His kingdom is lasting forever. It will have no end. It is powerful and it has authority. And it will never be destroyed. It is unreal that an Old Testament prophet would say that a man walked up to the throne of God and received glory from God. And yet this man does exactly that. So when Jesus says, the son has been given authority because he is the son of man, what Jesus is saying is, I have the authority to put people into the kingdom and to put people out of the kingdom because it's my kingdom. God has given it to me. I'm not, I'm not a trustee. I am not a regional ruler I am the king over all of it. It is my right as king to take people in and to put people out. I have the right to decide who is in my kingdom and who is out of my kingdom. I have the right to make sure that it is my choice and only my choice that puts people in the kingdom or, again, kicks them out. They are his sheep and he calls them. They are his sheep and he claims them. He writes their names in the book of life. He brings them out of judgment 
and gives them that which they could otherwise never gain, life. It is his sole prerogative and choice as the sovereign ruler of his kingdom. Spiritual resurrection is the undiluted choice of God. It is his election and his choice. Now you need to believe. And we are right to press people to believe. We're right to look at them and say, you have to come to faith. You have to trust in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we are doing is talking about heavenly realities, but there are earthly realities as well. Those earthly realities are this choice of us as we've already talked about, issues from us in terms of confession and repentance and faith. That's what it looks like. How do you know who was chosen? You know who was chosen because they say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then they walk in line with that. While it is something that Christ freely gives to all who are his, those who are his must respond because fourthly, resurrection is found in Jesus' will. Resurrection is found in Jesus' will says this shouldn't amaze you because there is coming a time. Now is not that time. The resurrection that we have talked about is currently going on, but that is not what I'm now talking about. There is coming a time when the dead will hear in the tombs and they will come out. This is clearly the physical resurrection. After all, he mentions their dead bodies in tombs for a reason. So this is the physical resurrection at the end of days. The thing that really ought to capture our attention here is what happens to those who come to the resurrection of life. First, we'll look at the end, the resurrection of judgment. Those who have done evil will come to the resurrection of judgment. And you'll notice that the resurrection of judgment is compared to the resurrection of life. To enter into judgment is the opposite of having life. It is immediate and total death. You will not escape that judgment. If you come into that judgment, you come into condemnation. There is nothing else for you. And they have done evil. Those who do not respond to the call of God, those who have not heard the voice of Jesus and been resurrected in their spirit, they will always do evil. There is evil in all of us. And we can paint over it. We can make it look pretty. We can even make it sound humanitarian. But there is evil lurking in all of us. And one of the reasons why you don't know it is probably because you don't see the goodness and the glory of God. Every single person in scripture who has this sort of interaction with God leaves thinking that they are worthless and worthy of being burned. Because you have never had an interaction with God, you might think that you are clear and you are safe. But Jesus says, those who do not respond to his voice do nothing but evil. The thing that really ought to prick our ears, though, is that first statement in verse 29. They will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Does that mean that we have to do good in order to gain the resurrection? We are, we are supposed to work for it. That, that in Roman Catholic theology, there is sort of a deposit of faith for you. And that by going into sacraments and doing good works and going to mass and giving confession that you earn a little bit more into your account each time. And that by doing that, eventually the idea is that, that you will have enough coinage to be able to shove forward before God and say, Hey, St. Peter, let me in through the holy gates because I have earned this. Through the merits that have been acquired by others, sure. But it is through my work to take from one account and to put it into my account. Is that what he means? No. First and foremost, 
It means that you have to believe and trust in Christ. When Jesus says, those who do good, this is indeed the first and most important good thing that you do. I know this because Christ tells us that this is the first and most important good thing we do in John 6. For most of you, this might even be on the exact same page, John 6, verses 28 and 29. We'll even back up to verse 25. After making food for 5,000 people, he goes to the other side of the sea and they follow him there. And when they find him, in verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the man will, uh, Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Okay, so we'll work for that. So tell us, how do we work for that? They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What, what are these good things that we need to be doing, Jesus? You're, you're, you're instructing us? You just fed us? Fair enough, you rebuke us? That's great. Tell us what we have to do. Jesus says to him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him he has sent. Belief. And for those who want to claim that faith isn't a work, faith is a work. It is a response. It's something that you do, but it is a response to what God has already given to you. God wakes you up. He makes you alive. Your salvation is secure, and you respond in faith. The first and most important good thing you do is nothing less than believing in God, believing that God has sent his Son in the person of Jesus Christ. So on one level, the good work that we do is nothing other than simply a call to believe on Jesus as the Son. But on another level, it means that you actually do the things that he has called you to do. This is part and parcel of what it means to listen to Christ's voice. To do good things is to do the things that he has commanded you. Preachers who continually put before people that there is no need for good works are lying to people and ought to be put down as preachers forever. You have to do good works. You have to. You have no confirmation of God's work in your life outside of the good things that you do which God has commanded for you. Living in unrepentant sin is never safe. And it is a clear, clear sign that you have no life in you and that Christ has not been working in you. To think, to think that what Christ has done is simply given you a pass for the judgment is false and wrong and is condemned by 2,000 years worth of history of Christian preaching. Jesus, more importantly than Christian history, says this in John 14, 21. And this is one of many verses in the epistles of John where you can find this, whether it's in the gospel, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, the book of Revelation, it doesn't matter. It's all over the place. Which, by the way, for those of you who would like, it's all over the place everywhere. Paul is no less affirmative of this. The one who thinks that you are justified by faith alone is no less affirmative that you must have the works of God in you. This is why he says, those who commit sexual sins, those who are thieves, those who blaspheme their parents, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus, back to him, says this in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Friend, you cannot claim to love God and not do what he says. You just can't do it. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You must, we must, all of us, obey Jesus. And yes, yes, you will do so imperfectly. Go read 1 John. John knows this. You're going to obey him imperfectly. You are fallible, you are wretched, and even if he has resurrected you in your spirit, you will still sin. But the key is always that you know that it is sin because you find it in God's word, you repent, and you do better, and you do better, and you do better, and you grow in holiness and sanctification. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have been saved. Live like you're saved. It's not that you're ever going to walk perfectly, but my goodness, you ought to come out of that cave and walk This is nothing less, by the way, than the Great Commission. Preachers who preach and anyone who teaches telling you that grace, grace, grace will save you without any work of your own, but then insist that good works have no part in it are giving you a half-truth at best. Good works are always the result. And as a matter of fact, obedience is part of our duty in evangelizing. What does Jesus himself say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them stuff, nice stuff, teaching them that I love them so much, I'm gooey for them, teaching them that they now have a free ticket to heaven and they can do whatever they'd like because I am very, very merciful and I will forgive them forever. Now, what does Jesus say? Teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. Any preacher who wants to think of himself as a great commission preacher, as a great evangelist, who is unwilling to tell people that they need to obey is not doing the great commission. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. What we're not saying is that your works earn your salvation. This is not legalism. It's not what we're doing. But friends, your works are a clear demonstration that you have been. Do not, if, do not confuse the effect with the cause. The effect is Christ calling you. The effect is Christ's grace upon you. The effect is his election of you. The, the effect is him saying, come out, follow me, my sheep. That is the cause of all of this. The effect is that you follow him imperfectly, tripping over yourself because you're a sheep and do that because you're fallible and you fall, because you're filled with sin even now and you mess up and in anger or in jealousy or in envy, you think wicked things, you say wicked things, you do wicked things. But when confronted with those wicked things, you do not excuse them. You do not blow them off, but you come back to a God who will forgive you, knowing that you are a sinner, knowing that you need forgiveness. His bountiful mercy is always there for you in Jesus Christ. So why run? Admit that you're a sinner. Repent. And God will be faithful to you. And then continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first resurrection then has to find its match. You are resurrected in spirit and finally Jesus says you will be resurrected in body as well. So spirit and soul will be together as your bodies are now, as mortal and as fallible as they are. You could not stand before God. 
you could not see the visage of God. But God will so clothe you one day that you will rest with him in his city where his light will be all the light that you need. That is the hope of the resurrection, both our souls and our bodies being raised before God. Friends, let us today hear the voice of Jesus. For some of you, I pray, you might be hearing his voice for the first time. And, and you, you might have heard the gospel time and time and time again. But you only need to hear his voice once to come out of judgment and into life. And it is the honest and earnest prayer of this church that the lost might come to know Jesus. We want to be a Great Commission church. We want to hold fast to what the word says, and we want to be obedient to the call to convert sinners to the gospel, to get them, who are the elect, from before the foundation of the earth, written in the Lamb's book of life, to confess their sins before God and to confess that Jesus Christ is the one and only living sacrifice for their sins. For others who have long heard the voice of the Savior, I pray that you will marvel again at the great mercy and grace that he has had on your life. You deserve nothing that he has given to you. And he has been more kind than you can possibly imagine. Friends, he is a good and merciful Savior. Confess your sin to him. He will do right by you. He will allow you to pass through judgment by the confession of your sin and trusting in him. And in doing so, he will give you new life. Live and walk in the right paths through the resurrection of our Lord. Find life in him and live lives of obedience. Let us pray. Father, you have given to your son life in himself. And many of us rightly confess that your Son has given it to us. Not in ourselves, but through him. And so it is our great pleasure to raise our voices and to praise you for your work. You are truly a wonderful and merciful Savior. Give us fortitude to confess our sins, to progress on in the good works that you have laid out for us from before the foundation of the world, that your work in us might find its fullest possible expression. And give to those who are yours, but do not know it yet, life. Bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language so that your son might receive the promised kingdom. We pray this for the good of your people and the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.